HRN listeners. As we celebrate our 15th year, we are deepening our commitment to giving voice to the next generation of food system storytellers, and we need your help. Our internship and fellowship programs help activate new possibilities for underrepresented and underestimated young people through experiential journalism, audio engineering, and production training. Through these unique programs, HRN helps food equity stewards build essential workforce readiness skills that expand their potential and foster economic mobility. Please consider supporting these critical programs. And with a minimum donation, you can be entered to win a dinner for two at an amazing restaurant in one of eight cities and tickets to a concert at a great venue in one of those cities. We have incredible partners across the country who have donated as they also share our passion for helping to educate the next generation of food system storytellers. Check out heritageradionetwork.org 15 to donate and enter to win today. That's heritageradionetwork.org 15 to donate and enter to win today. And make sure you donate before March 31st. Thank you. Welcome to Heritage Radio Network on tour, broadcasting live from Feast Portland. I'm Dana Cowan, and before we kick things off, we'd like to thank Travel Portland, Stream PDX, and the Julia Child Foundation for making our coverage of Feast possible. Right now, I'm joined in this awesome Airstream engineered trailer uh, by an incredible cook, restaurateur, and human, Katie Millard. Katie, welcome. Thank you for having me. Uh, you have an extraordinary restaurant here in Portland called Coquine. I am practicing Radio Verite, so I went this morning for breakfast. <laughs> and because your brunch, which starts at 8 a.m., um, offers lunch, I actually had lunch for breakfast. And we find that it actually is really useful to people to have both options because people don't want those those kind of restraints or they don't want to be told what they want what to eat when people will order breakfast at 2 30 in the afternoon and they'll order lunch at 8 a.m that's the part that i find surprising because i actually will eat breakfast all day long into the night very happy to but i'm not i never knew that i was open to lunch <laughs> at whatever 9 a.m in the morning it's the oysters that really surprise me the most actually is people ordering oysters at, at literally 8 a.m before they've had a cup of coffee that one is a little surprising wow uh, oysters and coffee sounds <laughs> truly terrible yeah. um but you know i had albacore tuna and a spectacular tomato tart and uh soka which is a chickpea uh, pancake today so um yeah i'm caffeinated and fed but i i wanted to talk today about the notion of permanence and impermanence. Uh, because when I think about what you've created at Coquine, uh, you've created a, a neighborhood restaurant or a restaurant in a neighborhood that feels like it's built for permanence in an era when so many people and things are geared towards the moment. And I wanted to talk about your past experiences in relation to that because and you're someone who grew up all over the place and then lived in, well, all over the place. We can define that. <laughs> <laughs> it wasn't really in, actually in many all over places. the place. <laughs> yes, exactly. <laughs> um, and then, you know, spent five years in France and then you're in Michigan and then you're in, in Portland. And so... You've moved a lot. I have, yes. Um, what do you think of the notion of, like, how has moving around 
influenced what you want to do and who you are? That's a, that's a really interesting question and one that I have been actually reflecting on quite a bit in my life recently. So apropos that you, that you, that you want to talk about this today. Um, we, my husband and I have a saying, something we say to each other often, which is everything breaks, everybody leaves. <laughs> it's like, <laughs> except each other, hopefully. Except each other. But in a restaurant, that's how it kind of how it feels. Our turnover is huge. People work for, I was listening to an interview on NPR the other day where they stated um, a statistic where apparently the average turnover for an employee in any sector of any job in the United States is nine years. And I'd be like, wow, I wish someone would work for me for nine months. You know? <laughs> I think it must be probably closer to nine months in our industry. Everything. And that's and not to anybody's it's not anybody's fault. That's kind of the nature of restaurants. If you want to cook for a living, you want to go work for many people and learn as much as you can. And uh, but it's but it's difficult from a business owner standpoint of, course, of retraining, um, hiring, rehiring. Indeed. indeed. I mean, it becomes that becomes your job. Like you think that your job is to feed people and actually your job is to hire and to train people. It's exactly it's exactly true. I'm a human resources manager. I'm not a chef. <laughs> <laughs> That's what, I, what I do is make the business run and I hire the people to cook the food for me. I wish I could have like a prep shift in my in my kitchen once in a while where I just cooked and didn't yeah. have to deal with the other stuff. But um, as far as permanence versus impermanence, um, you're you're right. I moved a, a lot. I have moved a lot in my life. I was born in um, Rhodesia when it was Salisbury, when it was actually Zimbabwe, Rhodesia, just before they gained their independence. And lived in South Africa for a while. Um, I grew. Did you do you have memories of Rhodesia? Not of Rhodesia. I have memories of South Africa, but I think mainly because I've been back, and it all kind <laughs> of muddies itself together in my brain a bit. I don't know if it's memories of me as a two or three year old or if it's just because I was there when I was nine and ten and it it seems I just have Africa memories in my brain. Um, and what are those Africa memories? Uh, strangely, I remember the airport. <laughs> <laughs> I remember um, the airport and I remember getting on the plane when we were moving to the States um, and my aunts and uncles were there and they had given us little gifts and we were, I, I remember that moment. I remember uh, the jasmine bush in our backyard and the way that smelled. Um, and I mean, mainly family. It's family memories, I think, that, that stick out the most to me. Um, we... I have a family that is very, my mother's side of the family is very spread out all over the world. Um, and we, her family is Portuguese. Her parents uh, left a dictatorship in Portugal and moved to Africa like so many Portuguese people. Um, so she was born in Malawi and grew up in Mozambique. And, um, but they're just, they're very international kind of people. And, and so my family has always felt very spread out, but there's this tight knit, every time we get together, it's like we have, always been together mm -hmm. um so I have those those kind of like really ingrained family memories and in, in my brain I think but I spent the biggest chunk of my life in Mobile Alabama actually it was where I, I grew up um and yeah I went to college in Michigan uh lived in New Orleans lived in in a couple different places in between in the summers and uh and then went to France for five years right after graduating college moved back to the states and went to San Francisco and uh, three years later, moved to Portland, and um, I have never really, I've always had this weird notion of home in my brain. I don't ever really, people ask me where home is, and I think Portland's home. That's my home now, and I I don't I don't feel like, I mean, my family wasn't from the South, I, where I have um, 
things that in my mind and psyche tie me to the South, but it's not my heritage. And, um, but neither so, is Africa really. It's cause I've lived here all my life. So it's, so how do you define home? Home, I think for me is where I'm comfortable. Um, where I, f where I feel good. And to me, it's in my life right now, it's as much at my house and here as it is at my, at our restaurant, um, that I think of our staff as my family. And I mean, I spend more time at my restaurant than <laughs> I do at home probably. <laughs> well, actually from that perspective, having family that comes and goes would be very hard because the notion of family is it's so true. You can't choose them. <laughs> and essentially they're stuck with you forever. But if your staff becomes your family and they really can choose to leave, to leave. and do, what does that feel like? It well, I think in my in in my experience, it my family is more like that to me than than something I'm stuck with because I didn't grow up with family. We didn't have any family. I had an aunt that lived in Mobile, Alabama for a couple of years and then she left and we didn't our family would come and go. My grandmother would come spend six months with us and then she would go back to Africa and, or Portugal or wherever she was happened to be living at the time. So family to me is maybe not as is is more in my mind a notion of they'll always be there if I need them, but they're not here, <laughs> you know. And so. So and again, strange that we, you want to talk about permanence and impermanence, but it's the first time in my life where I have actually felt like. I'm, I'm good. I'm home. I'm not going to go anywhere else. I'm, I traveled for a very long time and I did it, um, for, for many reasons, but a lot of it was cooking. I mean, after post-college, most of it was cooking and, and learning and wanting to go, uh, where the best opportunity for me was at the time, perhaps. Um, and that was what drove my decision of where to go. And now I have a husband and a, a restaurant and a four-year-old and I'm and I'm, and I feel like You're I'm here. home finally <laughs> finally 38 well, years old and I'm home that's great. <laughs> Wel welcome home I think we you know we all have the ability to find home somewhere at some time this is this is your time but I know that there was another home that you lived in that burned down and that was, uh, I wonder how that intersects with your notion of what home is and the sense of nothing is permanent and how you recover from a disaster of that kind. I think it's huge. Um, it's, it's huge. I was, um, I was 22 at the time, so I wasn't a, t a tiny child, but um, I think still very much in my, in my formative years as far as, as relating myself to my surroundings and, and interacting with my community and, and finding a home and feeling like I belong somewhere. And um, it was actually more than that. Um, so I, uh, for reasons that we don't have time for, I'm sure, but uh, I got actually got kicked out of my house that I was living in and- Okay, was, I need to know why. <laughs> why did you get kicked out? So, uh, well, <laughs> my, a friend of a friend of mine who had been on vacation in Haiti um, came back, no, sorry, Jamaica, not Haiti. He'd been on vacation in Jamaica and he was crashing on my couch because he had broken up with his girlfriend. We were in college. It was just all very fluid, obviously. Um, <laughs> but then he uh, saw fit to ship himself a large amount of hash to my address. Oh, boy. <laughs> <laughs> and we, I, I came down, I came home to like the full like FBI had broken my door down. Everything was off the shelves. My entire house was ripped apart. Um, and so my landlord didn't really like that very much. And they, <laughs> oh and they uh, once they had intercepted their suspect, um, he said, I'm sorry, you can't stay here. So we got kicked out of our house. And did that feel like a bad decision? You'll never repeat such a thing oh, or ever, ever, ever. Will I repeat that thing? Because it I, th I feel like it kind of set in motion this um, domino effect of things that led to a disaster of a last semester in college for me. Yeah. 
um, being I couched there for a while until I found another place and and then I moved into that apartment, which was this big, gorgeous old house that had been broken up into one-bedroom apartments. Um, and I lived there for may- not even a month. Um, oh. And then I hadn't even unpacked everything yet because it was my last semester, and I was very overwhelmed. And um, and I got it was April Fool's Day, and I was at the bank. I remember this so so clearly, like it was yesterday. I was at the bank, and um, my best friend called on my. Sub- I had like just gotten a cell phone. It was the most novel thing in the world because I had never had a cell phone before. And um, she called on my cell phone and I looked at it and I was like, well, I'm at the bank. I was talking to my loan officer and I ignored it. And she called again and I ignored it again. And, I- and she called again. And so I answered, <laughs> of course, as one does. And she said, Katie Jane, you have to go home. Your house is burning down. Oh and I said, ha ha, happy April Fool's Day to you too. <laughs> you got me. And she said, no, I'm not joking. What are you talking about? I wouldn't joke about this. And 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 yeah, my house was burning down. And um, how did she know? She actually lived a block away, and okay. she was walking home and saw. And she just saw, saw your house my house on fire. Wow. <laughs> yeah. Um. And, and you were, you arrived to fire trucks. I arrived to two fire trucks and flames, and and sat and literally sat and watched the building burn down. Um. With that friend of mine, who actually is now my bar manager. <laughs> Oh, a continent away family. She, exactly see family we didn't see each other for so long and then randomly ended up in portland and now she works at my restaurant and i feel like she never left <laughs> so yes permanence and permanence it's all everything's connected um but so i yeah i was devastated and and um felt like my whole world was gone and fell apart and had friends who let me stay with them and i graduated a month and a half later and and just decided hey I've always wanted I, I knew I wanted to cook from a, from a young age I knew I wanted to cook my my dad really wanted me to go to college and get that education and and I think I really I wanted to too but I, I just wanted to, to cook that's all I wanted to do um so I had had it in my mind as did many young aspiring cooks 20 years ago you have to go to France that's what you have to do if you want to cook you need to go to France and so I went to France. Well, I decided I was going to go. Um, so I worked for a little while and saved up some money and bought myself a backpack. And um, Do you think that would have happened had your house not burned down? Do you know, I asked my, I've asked myself that so many times. And I don't know. I don't know. I know I probably would have gone. I don't know if my life would have ended up as it, as it did had that not happened, I probably wouldn't have gone as quickly. I wouldn't mm-hmm. have gone when I did. Mm-hmm. I might not have been in the brain, in the headspace that I was. And what was that? Was it like, I have no home. I have no home. That was my headspace. I have nowhere to. I have nowhere to go. Nowhere to go. I don't belong anywhere, and I have to go find who I am. And uh, I think maybe a lot of people feel like that after college in some way. And so for me, it was just kind of compounded again and then compounded on this notion in my brain that I never had a home because my home did never feel like my home because my family was elsewhere. And um, so I I went and I went to Portugal um, where I have family and I got I am a Portuguese citizen, which made huh. living and working in Europe obviously very easy um so I got my paperwork taken care of and I was traveling with my that friend who had told me my house was burned down and now works for me we were traveling together um and we traveled around for a couple weeks she went home uh I stayed my I traveled by myself for a while but didn't really I mean I knew I kind of wanted to go to France but how do you start you don't know where to you don't know how to start I didn't really speak French I I had some some university French and I knew how to you know construct a sentence but um I couldn't understand what anybody was saying um so I traveled around for a while and then my dad um, but I think that notion of how to start and where to start is so critical like 
do you start in the middle? What was your idea about starting just get going just I think I just was kind of barreling through until I found I I thought I'll find a starting point it'll come to me it'll Mm -hmm. come I'll just do I'll just keep doing what I'm doing and something something will come up I kind of I think I was and maybe because I was kind of terrified that I didn't really want to work it out in my brain Mm -hmm. and so I just I just did I just went and I traveled and my dad had a medical conference in Paris so I went to spend uh, a week with him there and we went to eat at a restaurant um, Guy Savoie. Um I think everybody who's known read anything about me knows this story <laughs> because everyone <laughs> writes about it they do they, <laughs> they just do. love that Guy Savoie story they do but you asked him like be a dishwasher and he was like ha 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 yeah but he gave you the job <laughs> but he gave well he gave me a job he a sent job. me to one of his bistros yeah. and and said you can have a job um here and we'll get you know maybe we'll give you a job in in the big restaurant um when you learn french first of all and um you know have a little more kitchen experience but um but you know it's had any of those things not happened i wouldn't have ended up in the restaurants i did i might i thought i'd stay in france for like a month or two or three maybe i stayed for five years i'm i'm curious because i i read and i don't i don't know if it's um accurate or not that you took increasingly difficult stages or jobs in France. I did. <laughs> That's ki- that to me strikes me as hard to believe since Guy Savoie um is hard. Yes, but, but the but the bistro where I landed was actually uh very friendly um for an American girl who didn't really speak much French. Um my chef was very patient. He actually pretty much taught me to speak French. Um, he would he would write my list with me at the end of the night, my prep list, and um, I would go home and look up words that I didn't know, and he would t- he took a lot of time with me that I think a norm- a, any other a chef Frenchman. in France <laughs> would never have yeah. given me that much, put that much effort into me, and I don't actually, he was just a very kind man, I guess, but he didn't, I don't know why he did it, but he invested a lot of time and energy into me, and um, it wasn't a three-star Michelin restaurant, so it was uh, a much more friendly kitchen environment. Everybody there spoke French, Nobody really spoke to me in English, so I was forced to learn French very quickly. And But they all kind of helped. Now, was it easy? No, it wasn't easy because I didn't speak French. And I very much felt like an outsider. And I was the only girl in the kitchen. And... Um, but uh, but I wanted I wanted more in terms of um, technique and quality of food and things like that. So I took a harder job. And what does that mean to take a harder job? Like, I wasn't sure... Um, what is... Rigor? In, so, in the kitchen. like, technique, like mm-hmm. the... And and the kind of like military organization that exists in some kitchens in France and what chefs demand of you. So there's, a, you know, more the higher you go in terms of a tier in a kitchen, um, the more perfection is demanded, the less people actually allow you to mess up um, and 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 be, they're not OK with it. And you have to do it again. And so, so. what about the notion of escalating perfection? Because um a lot of us sort of head towards perfection, but perfection seems a very specific point in time. But in a kitchen... And unattainable, uh, I think. Right, and unattainable. <laughs> but it seems in a kitchen it is attainable, and you are going forever greater and levels you try, of perfection. But you never get there, I, never get which, there. Is, which is at once frustrating and the whole point. Uh, I mean, what if you just got there, then you'd stop, and and then what would we do? You know. So and how do you feel about the relation of perfection to cocaine... Um, that's a very loaded question. <laughs> um, I think, so I, I was in fine dining my entire career until Coquine, until Portland. Um, I worked at Michelin-starred restaurants in France, um, and then in San Francisco I worked at Qua, 
And uh, it was all fine dining, fine dining, fine dining forever. And then when I moved to Portland, first of all, fine dining is not as much a thing in here as it is in other cities in the country, of course. Um, it's, you know, the, there's not as much money here, first of all, but I think also it's just a, a calmer, chiller vibe. Mm -hmm. And um, so there are fine dining restaurants, but it's not as widespread as, as other cities of this size. And um, so, but also I just think I reached a point in my career and in my life where I wanted to cook the kind of food that I want to eat every day and not fine dining food. I have nothing against fine dining. I think it's wonderful and it has a place and it raises the bar and I eat at fine dining restaurants when I can afford it. But um, it's feeling for me it was much more a point and you know to bring it all for full circle of of this notion of of home and community and something that I've always felt that I needed but never had and um you know kitchens and food are a very central part of that that maybe we've lost <laughs> along the way um so for me coquine and and what it is and and needed to be was was part of a community and a neighborhood restaurant, ambitious neighborhood restaurant, but you can't take the fine dining out of me. Like it's it would just, be hard. It that extraction process would be like removing bone marrow. It, exactly. Just, it's yeah. just what I do and it's who I am and it's how I've always cooked. So it's, and it's, and it's really hard to straddle that line, I think. But, um, I can, my husband will joke that I can tell from across the room if a piece of lamb is overcooked. Um, and I can, and I see it and I'm like, no, that's just wrong. <laughs> Uh, it's wrong because it's it's it, first of all you messed up the technique is wrong mm -hmm. and uh, secondly that's not what the customer expects or is paying for mm -hmm. and thirdly you're showing a massive amount of disrespect to that animal and the person who raised that animal and all that hard work so all of those things are very much present in my mind but we um we cook f everyday food for for all intents and purposes we're not i'm not trying to reinvent the wheel we don't have a a cryovac machine we don't cook sous vide we don't do foams and powders and it's um although happily i would say so many people do not anymore you know it's um there's been a rebellion ag against those uh you know deserved or not the the notion of where you chose um the rest to place the restaurant um which is you know in a true neighborhood at the base of a f as i understand because my portland geography is I'm not existent, <laughs> but at the base of a forest. So it is and uh, on an extinct volcano. <laughs> on an extinct volcano. Okay. Yeah. I, I also thought that was interesting in the notion of permanence, impermanence. You know, you've, you've sort of put yourself in this setting where permanence would be the norm. You know, if you're in a restaurant row, the expectation is it'll come, it'll go, it'll find an audience, the audience will, you know, come or go. I had exactly that thought. You did. I did exactly that thought. I don't want to be a, among an, um, a lot of other restaurants. Mm -hmm. I don't want to be that. And it's really obviously it's really hard in in any city in any in this day and age to not be. If you want to be a successful restaurant, you need to be where people are going to go to eat because that's where the demand is. So you have to. You're kind of. I think maybe a lot of people would think we're crazy to open our restaurant where we did, um, but it's uh, we didn't really choose the space. I think the space chose us and that neighborhood. I'm not sure I believe in that. <laughs> why, we do were, you say, why do you say that? We were looking for, we were looking for a space and for, for a while, for a long time we had, um, we, my husband and I met, um, in Portland and we, I don't think I had always, I don't think I'd always kind of planned on opening my own restaurant, but I just got tired of working for other people. Mm -hmm. And what's the downside of working for other people? Cause there are some upsides, many upsides, uh, lots, and lots and I think I've only come to realize all the upsides since I have started working for myself. 
Um, but the downsides are, or the biggest downside in my in my mind is that you can never truly do what you want to do. And I got really tired of uh, compromising my values and um, and doing things in a way that I thought was inherently wrong. That so I can't. I, I wasn't comfortable, and I. It sounds really kind of apocalyptic and and whatnot, and like I'm talking about something other than cooking, maybe. But it really, I thought to myself in, that I was inherently doing something that I really disagreed with, um, not supporting small farmers or truth in menu. I've worked for people who, um, unfortunately, would they would print something like heirloom tomatoes on a menu when it was like Roma tomatoes from Mexico in February. Ow. And yeah, and I thought it was very dishonest, and um, and I, I don't like processed food and what it has done to our to our fragile at best uh food system in in this country and so you know processed food ingredients don't have a place in my kitchen and i and i and i would have to use those things in other people's kitchens and it just felt it felt wrong and false and not me and um do you feel like it took you a long time to um collect the notions of your values Oh yeah, my whole life. <laughs> I think. Um, although there were moments, I uh, big aha moments. I tell think. me what. Tell me an aha moment. An aha moment. Oh, an aha moment. Uh, qua, qua in general was a big aha moment for me. Um, Daniel Patterson uh, is also, a, he's inspiring to say the least. Um, but he's also very, um, very. He holds on to his values very closely, and he. Uh, he doesn't compromise them and that's inspiring to see someone who he works very hard and he would do things the long hard way because it meant that much to him to do it the right way mm-hmm. um so so that was a, a big one for me qua in in many ways was very was fundamental in in kind of putting i think that like final touch on my value system that i had been growing for a while mm-hmm. but france um in a big way and seeing I mean, again, I grew up in Mobile, Alabama, which is about as far from France as you can get. I mean, it's, it's, there were so many. What is like the foundational food memories of Mobile? Like, oh. is that where your bologna sandwich comes from? Because I <laughs> love bologna. And I was like, oh my God, bologna sandwich. Like, you're so speaking to me. I chose the other things on your menu this morning, but I really wanted the bologna sandwich. You know, the bologna sandwich is actually all my husband. He, no kidding. Yeah, he grew up. So he was born uh, in West Germany. His um, father was in the army and he traveled as much, if not more as I did, um, during his childhood. And he would, uh, they would go to like the military base grocery store where you could get American food and he would get to choose two things. And he would always choose like bologna or sliced ham and yellow mustard. Wow. <laughs> and so I think for him, that's definitely his and his, and he says we put it on the menu for kids, but it's really for him. <laughs> <laughs> um, do you make your own? Uh, no, it's uh, more. Or is that so, impossible? And it's actually no, it's not impossible. It's impossible for us because cocaine is so. Our kitchen is so tiny and inadequate for the business that we do. Um, but no, it's but it's mortadella. It's like Italian. Yeah, like, nice I figured quality. it was going <laughs> to be <laughs> actual mortadella. mortadella. Um, um, but your husband comes from a place that doesn't exist. And, and so do I. Actually. And you do too. We actually and often he actually says that a lot is that we were both born in countries that don't exist anymore. <laughs> I feel like there's something so um, well scary, and going back to that notion of you know, what can you rely on if literally the place that you come from does not exist. And it's interesting to me because we don't. We I think that there's very much two reactions to those situations and my husband and I have exactly the opposite reaction so you know again I lost 
everything in a house fire and then and several years later when moving back to the states i actually had shipped a, shipped a bunch of my belongings very slow mail and lost it all again <laughs> did that have dishes in it um i'm trying to think of my anyway no no so how did it, you lose it all again it just it, the the boat just i don't know i just never got the boxes i shipped a bunch of boxes it was all my cookbooks and my notes <gasps> and my photographs and my journals from france and like all of it and it just never showed up and my uh, my my dad actually got an envelope that was in one of those boxes and it had his return address on it and it showed up at his house like a year later with a with a sticker on it that said recovered mail. <laughs> like recovered memories. Does and that make you approach like every day in a more conscious way? Like I'm going to remember it today because in fact it might go away. The box might not come back. Well, the dish I might not come back. Yeah, but. I think and and for me I have I have uh, my reaction to it is to try to not hold on to things so okay, they can't the be taken away from me. Mm -hmm. I think, um, so I don't. I'm. Not, I don't. I've. I try to get rid of things very quickly. I. I don't like clutter, and I don't like if I don't need it, I get rid of it. I try to give it to somebody who wants it or sell it or a bunch. But I just. I can't hold on to it. Whereas my husband is the polar opposite. So he moved every couple of years when he was young and they could only take one box and so they had to get rid of everything and now he hoards everything <laughs> he like he doesn't want to get rid of things and so I think it's very interesting how the very same or very similar situations can have those two opposite reactions um, but I am very much uh, I don't hold on to things and I try to so that I guess I'm setting myself up to not be disappointed <laughs> my uh, my husband grew up moving around all the time and um, with very, very little money. And as a result for him, if he gets something, he feels like there's a war on, he might need it later. Like I try yep. to get rid of things and he's like, but you might need that scrap of cloth. You <laughs> never know when that's going to come in handy. And I feel like it's just, I, um, I want everything to match. I like order. Mm -hmm. um, Same. Yeah. yeah, but his and his sister is just like me. His sister looks in our refrigerator and is like, "Why is all this expired food in here?" And Barkley's like, "It's still good." She's like, "Get rid of it." Just watching the siblings because they've obviously had the exact same experiences growing up, mm -hmm. and they just experience it um, or they live through it right now in a completely different way. Um, so I can imagine what is it like um, working with your husband and then having your son, right? Hugo, Hugo, Hugo. Yeah, um, it's challenging uh but wonderful uh we we um we have very different strengths and obviously weaknesses and so we we complement each other very well that way but at the same time that makes for a very challenging work environment because I have things that are very important to me and he has other things that are very important to him um but uh what are the what types of things are those um the the bones <laughs> I think we um I am very, I'm much better with money and I'm good at math and I, I take that part of running a business very seriously. Um, and he is, he pays much more attention to, um, well, this is what we need to create the best guest experience we possibly can. Uh, so that needs to be our focus and we can worry about everything else later. Um, and so you can see that obviously those things would clash very quickly. <laughs> those, um, but he's also very much more, I feel, I believe deeply even though th somebody might tell me that they would assume that the chef would be the creative force in a restaurant or kitchen I believe he is 20 times as creative as I am and I mean most of the aesthetics in our restaurant are all him and um we he inspires me 
daily and I don't I mean the food at Coquine would not be what it is without him and our conversations around food and flavors and wine and how it all ties together and um, in what way is he more creative I think it or where does it come from right because it probably you draw from different inspirations yes we do and I think I guess that's kind of what I mean. All of my inspiration kind of comes from my past experiences and I'm very inspired by places I've lived and things I've eaten and books I've read. Whereas I feel like he can just conjure up these things from nowhere. And I'm always really jealous of, of the fact that I'm the hardest. I think the hardest part of my job is, is creative is the creative part of it. And, you know, being having to constantly innovate and create and that part doesn't maybe come as easily to me as I mean I can I can cook the food and I can season the food and I can um, I think I'm really good at making things balance on a plate as far as both textures and flavors and um, I'm good at those things uh, but I it's really hard for me sometimes to just come up with new ideas and how important do you think innovation is and new ideas I hope it's not that important. <laughs> uh, I think it's important. So, but but I don't think it's as important as people would would have us believe. Um, I think as you know, which can be seen in in the whole comfort food, you know, situation in our society. There's we 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 cling to things that are comforting to us and things that we that we find familiar and um, I think happily for me, those things are also very important. So. I can I can take those notions and and use things that are very that are common perhaps and comforting um, but you know do it a little bit better or a little bit different or you know with a little twist that keeps things interesting but not completely foreign so if doing the creative side is the harder part um, do you set aside time like what's your process to arrive at the Oof. innovations we that you do we, I try to set aside time and that time is always like the back burner time. <laughs> <laughs> the time you lose. So it usually ends up being honestly like a one o'clock in the morning conversation because we really need to change a dish because blackberries are no longer around and what are we going to do? And so just starting with something, with one thing, but it's usually, it's not organized at all. It's very organic and it's very, also very haphazard. And I think um, the, the, um, the ideas are there. It's just actually like finding the time to slow down and grab at them mm -hmm. that I, that is hard for me and that we, that we lack. So it's, um, yeah, there's no, there's no process. It's just, it's conversations. It's an idea. It's, it's banter. And I think that's a lot of the reason why Coquine would not be what it is if my husband and I didn't actually work there together. It's our restaurant. It's not my restaurant at all. And um, you know, I, I manage the kitchen and I, and I do that side of things, but, um, the restaurant as a whole is very much an expression of, of us as a couple and us together. What do you think of where the restaurant uh, world is going right now in, in Portland? I don't know how much you pay attention to the national scene, but it's such a critical moment. It is. Um, and I think one that we will look back on, uh, several years down the road and, and realize how critical and important it was. And um, I'm hopeful. <laughs> uh, I'm very hopeful. For me, it's more than just restaurant, but it's food in general, um, of which obviously restaurants are a huge, huge part. Um, but I think if we don't, if we don't get our act together very quickly, we're going to regret it. Um, I thought that for a while, and because 
you know, the changes are happening. They're there. They might happen a little bit more slowly than I would be happy <laughs> than, than would make me happy. Um, but the changes are there and, and the, the things are happening slowly. And, and so I'm, I'm hopeful. Um, people placing more of an importance on food and putting more value on food and, and restaurants in general, um, you know, restaurants used to be, and I think people still kind of have this, um, this notion that, that we are in the service industry, we are here to serve you and not you are cooking me dinner and you are feeding me and nourishing my body. Um, and that, I think that like dichotomy, that vast difference in, in the value that someone puts on a plate of food and on someone cooking that food, um, is it, that, that gap is getting smaller. And, um, and that makes me really happy. Um, it, it brings to mind um, the immigration crisis worldwide and the fact that your mother is family and perhaps more of your family mm -hmm. experienced that sense of displacement. Um, how do you feel about the relationship of, um, you know, displacement, food, and, um, you know, the refugee crisis around the world? That's too broad a question, but... Oh, it's a huge question. <laughs> <laughs> Maybe, like, but, yeah, but write a 10-page essay on that. Yeah, and I could. And, yes, well, I could if I had the time. But um, <laughs> uh, I could talk about it for a long time, I think. Um, it's it's huge. Um, that 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 aspect of our lives in 2018 is, is huge and pervasive and very disturbing, I think. Um, you know, food... And, and home and the, all those big broad notions that that are really hard to talk about maybe because they're just so ingrained in our brains through the process of evolution that we have been a part of for so many hundreds of thousands of years and it's um, so it's really it's really hard to, to talk about it in the in words that have a context in our current society I think which is what makes it very difficult is we try and relate it to our society but but it's more than that and it's bigger than that and it goes back farther than that and you know we have a need to feel like we belong somewhere because of something that happened so long ago and 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 yet on a very real immediate permanent day-to-day -day basis we need food and those things are so tied together um that it's really hard to analyze that relationship when they come from so very um so very vast a separation of a of, of an amount of time um so I think that to give a couple of a couple of observations pretty quickly on a really huge subject, um, the the refugee crisis is is very specifically um, it hits me right in my heart um, because I became I became an American citizen I was thirteen years old um, I remember it I had to study for a test I I did I did the whole thing. Um, and, and so I am an immigrant. I wasn't born here. And my, uh, my father was an American citizen, is an American citizen, uh, but my mother wasn't. And it's, it's something that I, f I feel I, I, um, that is, that was a gift to me. It was not a gift, maybe a gift is the wrong word. It was, but it was special and it was important. And, um, and I think so many people take that for granted and, and, and don't, and forget that that people don't have that gift of a home and a birthplace where they are safe and comfortable and they belong and they have their heritage and they don't question who they are and that is something that is so taken for granted by so many people 
And and rightly so. They've never had to experience it. It's not their fault. They're ignorant to the whole situation. But we need to open our eyes to the fact that the world doesn't function that that way. And and at a very basic level, those people need a home and they need food. And those two things are, are part of a, a much bigger picture, but um, but they're really important, and yeah. and we and we and we take them for granted. I mean, we do. We throw massive amounts of food away as a society, and we kick people out of our country who actually really need a safe place to be. And um, so, anyway, to not get on a political soapbox because that's not what you're asking me to do. Um, I think everything is very connected, and and we need to open our eyes as a society to how important those things are, and prioritize them rather than prioritizing big business and money and and all of the things that I think are are secondary and sure they make the world go round and they make our country function and just like my business needs to be a profitable business or it will die um, you, you need to you need to pay attention to those things but where we actually focus our energy and where we really really critically question our value systems we need to we need to focus on the human side of things and and realize that that those things are are the most important. So let's talk about um, a human that's very Im important to you because I I love paying it forward to other women in the industry. Uh, you know, women are underrepresented, Huge. and uh, it's a great opportunity to share our voice with those who don't have as much of a voice. So is there a woman you admire um, in the food industry? Could be any part of it, you know, farmer, fisherman, distributor, whatever, um, who you'd love to call out and explain why she's so amazing? There are so many. <laughs> How do I choose one? Oh my goodness. Um, wow. You can choose a couple. Okay. <laughs> Thank you. Yeah. <laughs> That'll make it easier. It does. It makes it much easier. Um, the only female chef I've ever worked for, um, Ann Kearney, who... Wow. Yeah. In New Orleans. In New Orleans. Exactly. A restaurant called Peristyle that um, I think still exists, but does not exist the way it did when I lived there 19, almost 20 years ago. Um, she ran her kitchen very differently from any of the other obviously male chefs that I've ever worked for. Um, and I didn't, I don't think I really realized it until, until I had this conversation with somebody very recently as well is, is how different that kitchen was. It was, it was a family. There was a, there was a sign above the kitchen door on the way out into the dining room that said food of love. And I've, I've always remembered that and thought how important that, that is how imp it's so important. And, um, because cooking for people mo a lot of the time we do because we love them we do because it's our family and we want to you know give them the best food we possibly can and we want them to be you know, fed and satiated and healthy and um so that I think she had a a very a very big impact on on me in that she ran her kitchen people were very important to her mm -hmm. um more important perhaps than than people were to many of the chefs that I have worked for I've seen chefs who would would very much people were very disposable um if someone came along that was better at at their job than someone who was currently working for them that person would get fired and the other person would get hired and it was just there was no consideration to the human aspect of like running a business <laughs> not all of, not not all of them to not to knock men as a as a gender mm -hmm. but um i but i think there is something very different about the way women approach 
a, a, a business and a group of people and, um, and especially a group of people that we're around every day and that's just in our genetic makeup and right because we're very different um so she was she was huge i think in 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 who i am today maybe as a boss and who i am who i will allow myself to be as a business owner um and then there are the many 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 women who do what i do or like work harder than i do even farmers they I have so much respect. They're heroes. <laughs> they are my heroes. They yeah. really are. They are the most VIP of VIPs that ever come into our restaurants. <laughs> they, they sit and I and I actually really get nervous when I'm when I'm cooking for the farmers who grow the food that we cook. It's like a genuine thing in my heart where I'm like, don't mess it up. I love that, of course, because you don't. You know, you're honoring the ingredients and all their work and all their work. Into- all their work. So there's um, Sherry Sarkin at Dancing Roots Farm, um, who actually has taken a step back and isn't farming as much. She's working in uh, in the policy side of things, uh, who is one of the hardest working women I have ever met in my life. Um, I'm going to stop you at two then. That's great. That's great. Thank you. <laughs> there's so many. Those, those two are big ones. I just, um, well, thank you so much for joining me. Katie. Um, and thanks again to Travel Portland, Stream PDX, and the Julia Child Foundation for making our coverage of Feast possible. And thanks to Aaron Parecki, who's the co-founder of Stream PDX, for being our sound engineer today. It's awesome to be here in Portland and meet such incredible women. Thank you. Thank you. Thank you.